Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Timothy Brooke, professor of history at the University of British Columbia and the author of Vermeer's Hat, the 17th century and the dawn of the global world. Tim, welcome to Econ Talk. It's my pleasure to be here. Your book, Vermeer's Hat, is a fascinating look at globalization in the 1600s, particularly the growing ties between Europe and the rest of the world, and particularly uh, the impact of China on much of the world. It sounds like a very modern story, doesn't it? It does sound like a modern story, and I think one of the reasons why I wrote this account of the early 17th century in the way I did was to surprise the reader, to to get the reader to realize that um, the, the the globalization of the world, that, uh, which is the phase we feel we live in now, really goes all the way back um, at least to the 17th century. I wanted to to get the reader to realize that we're 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 not at this uh, uniquely um, unusual point of time ourselves. That in fact we, there is a history, a several centuries history to the globalization we're experiencing today, and I think it goes back to the 1600s. That's when you start to see people and goods and ideas moving around the world um, in, in ways that their ancestors had no idea was possible. Part of the reason for that was the uh, advances in, in shipbuilding and navigation, I assume. That yes, yes that, that was part of the story. Uh, the, um, one of the great challenges in sailing on the ocean is not getting lost as yes. soon as you go outside of <laughs> land. Um, you, you hug the coast, you're fine. Once you've left the coast you have to establish latitude and longitude. And and longitude was notoriously difficult for mariners until really the end of the 18th century. It was very easy to get lost in the water. So, um, uh, but with navigation techniques, um, larger ships that could withstand ocean storms, these are all factors that enabled um, mostly the Europeans. There were others who were in this maritime navigation story, but mostly the Europeans that enabled them to... uh, to lose sight of land and not be lost. And, of course, staying close to land had its own perils. Well, yes, it did. Uh, Shipwrecks were one of the great common events of the 17th century. In fact, uh, shipwreck tales become an interesting uh, fictional genre in their own right. And and we have all the great writers taking this up. Uh, Mm -hmm. Shakespeare writes The Tempest. Defoe writes uh, uh, The Story of uh, Gulliver. I mean, you have all of these uh, fiction writers. Crusoe, you've... Right, right. Uh, And I guess part of it was also competition uh, among the the great uh, seafaring nations that were vying for influence and and wealth. Yes, I uh, I think this is probably true. I never quite know what to do with the issue of competition. Certainly, it drove some of the, um, or it imparted some of the dynamism to what Europeans in the 17th century were doing, because the the, um, international maritime trade had started with the Spanish and the Portuguese through the 16th century in in competition with each other. By the end of that century, the Spanish and Portuguese crowns have been united. Um, The competition is still there, but it's dulled down. But what really gets the trade moving in the 17th century is when other uh, European nations, particularly England, the Netherlands, France, when these countries start trying to fight their way into the trade, this seems to lend a particular impetus to their trading and uh, exploration exploits. In the book, you use the paintings of the great Dutch painter Vermeer as a jumping off point for understanding the pace of change in the 17th century, and it's a bit of it's a bit of a challenge in a podcast to talk about the paintings, but uh, some of them are available up on the web. They're beautifully uh, reproduced in the book. But let's talk about a few of those. All right. Uh, you open with the view uh, the view of Delft. View from Delft or view of Delft? A view of Delft. View of yes. Delft. It's uh, Vermeer's one significant landscape painting. And he may have done more, but it's the only one that survives. It's a this beautiful painting of the southwestern corner of the city uh, at the moat, which uh, surrounded the old city of Delft in the Netherlands. And it's a scene that 
well, at first glance, it's just a, just a, a bucolic yeah. a Dutch landscape, and you don't think much. Well, the the the. Well, I wouldn't think much. Of no, it, no. Uh, just to look one at look it. at it, just thinks, <laughs> oh, this lovely town, and yep. there's water in front, and beautiful skies, and those big nice white spires. clouds that blow it off the North Sea. Um, but I got intrigued with this painting because I thought, well, I asked myself, why did Vermeer paint this particular part of Delft? He could have he could have painted Delft from any number of angles. Um, and in fact, there had um, Delft really grew up in the 16th century as a major city, and there were standard artistic vistas that um, that painters took. But I was curious why he chose this one, and I, so I started doing some research, and I realized that the water we're looking at is actually the harbor, the city's harbor that connects it by waterway down to Rotterdam and eventually out to the North Sea and, and to the world. So, so I realized, first of all, that the water is a, is a harbor, I started looking at the boats in the harbor to try and figure out what they were doing there and why they were there. And then I started looking at the buildings. And the, the um, I, I'm sorry we don't have a visuals for the podcast, but the, we have a skyline, and we've got a couple of church steeples, and those are recognizably uh, the old and new church in, in Delft. But there's a large set of buildings that are, fill the left-hand side of the page. And I realized that this was the, these were the offices and warehouses of the Dutch East India Company. This was the, um, it was a, a novel institution that the Dutch created, the Dutch state created in 1602 to trade to Asia. Through the 1590s and the turn of the century, Dutch merchants were starting to set up their own little trading companies, uh, competing against each other. And the competition, rather than driving business up, was driving business down. There, was not, there were not enough goods in circulation for all these merchants to be competing with each other. So the Dutch government stepped in and said, right, you guys form a corporation. And um, they forced all the merchants trading to China into this corporation. It was a brilliant move because the corporation then uh, takes off. It's the beginning of the joint stock corporation that we know today. So what struck me about this painting, the view of Delft, was that, in fact, it's a portrait of the offices of the Dutch East India Company and Delft's trading links to the world. Now, I think you mentioned in that discussion that the Dutch government also uh, took a little piece of that action as a result of that. Uh, yes, yes. This incorporation. is... The, um, the, the formation of the Dutch East India Company um, facilitated the concentration of capital, it facilitated, facilitated shipbuilding, and the state was very much involved in this story. It, it, once the corporation was running, the state didn't particularly interest itself, other than, of course, taking a nice heavy cut in taxes. And that, but that, in a way, helps to finance the rise of the Netherlands in the 17th century. The, um, the Netherlands is a is an important trading nation in that period. It's also the first. Um, I think it's fair to say it's the first real republic. It's a, the the old order was overthrown. Um, the new merchant interests took control of the government and uh, built the Netherlands up. This was the great, the golden age for the Dutch. I'm just wondering if perhaps their interest in uh, the government's interest in forcing those merchants together had a, another motive besides uh, helping them be more successful. But uh, that's another story. Talk about the herring buses in the, ah. in the picture, because that was a fascinating example of economic change uh, stimulated by climate change and also uh, leading to some economic effects that were, uh, in this particular case, rather helpful to the Dutch. Yes, this was a nice surprise to me. Um, uh, I if you look at the painting, which you can't, um, there are two large, um, heavily built boats that are moored on the right-hand side of the harbor. Um, their masts have been struck. They're at the Delft shipyard. They're being refitted. Um, I was in, excuse me, I was in the Hague, which is where the painting hangs, and uh, when I was able to see the the, the uh, painting in real life, and it's much larger than I realized. Um, most Vermeer paintings, paintings when small. you see them, you're shocked by how small they are, uh, or I am. Give me a rough idea, because many, um, many of them are interior scenes by an open or closed window. Right, and, and, and those, those paintings are sometimes only about a foot or a little bit more wide. Wow. Um, the view of Delft, oh dear, I, I'm, I'm going to guess here it's about four or five feet wide. It's quite so, a large totally painting. Totally different, yeah. It was surprising. So you could, and, and you can always see detail much better in real life. No reproduction can do these paintings justice. Anyway, 
um, I digress. When I, when I looked at the painting, I saw these large boats and wondered what they were and was able to, um, to determine that these are called herring buses. These are boats that were used for the herring fishery in the North Sea. Now, one of the, one of the factors having to do with the, which is economic historians cite for the rise of the Netherlands is um, climate change. The, uh, the late 16th and 17th centuries were a much colder period. This was a period of global cooling. One of the things the global cooling did was force the herring stocks, which um, were normally up the Norwegian coast, it forced the herring south. So the herring come down much closer to the Netherlands, and Dutch fishermen are able to go out in the North Sea and reap um, a huge herring harvest through the late 16th, early 17th centuries. This is a kind of windfall that gives them wealth that they would otherwise have not been able to control. So um, what, I, what I explain in the book is that the rise of the Netherlands is in part tied to climate change, and these herring buses in the view of Delft are the sign in this painting of, of the changes that are happening. And I have to say I, en- I enjoy doing this. I enjoy looking at a painting and saying, all right, what has the artist included and why might those things be in that painting? This is not what art historians do. It's, I suppose it's what historians do, but it's, it's very much part of trying to understand uh, the world that uh, Vermeer lived in and the world he was trying to paint. Now, it would have been perfect from my point of view if uh, Vermeer had painted a winter scene. And then I could have waxed eloquent about uh, the, the colder winters and the way in which this affected the European economy. Alas, he never did that. He only seems to paint uh, spring, summer, and fall scenes. But um, um, we do know that, uh, that uh, the winters were cold when he was uh, a young man with a family. And one of the, there are very few records about Vermeer. He didn't leave any any uh, diaries or letters or account books or anything like that. But we do have some scraps, and one of the scraps says that he bought an ice boat in 1660. And an, uh, an ice boat was uh, something that the Dutch used to get around in winter. It was a, a, a kind of a, a sled with a sail, and you could go sailing along the frozen canals. Now, you couldn't do this uh, in the 16th century, and you certainly can't do it today. The canals don't freeze. But uh, in those days of global cooling, they did. So so this is the world that he's a part of, and, and we, perhaps we think of winter as a time in which uh, the economy, the traditional economy would slow down, um, there wouldn't be the same rate of trade, the crops aren't growing, but cold does other things. It moves people around, it forces people into other activities, and this is part of the story that, uh, that I tell in the book. Well, we've talked in other podcasts about the sometimes negative impact of natural resources on an economy, yeah. uh, it's called uh, sometimes called a curse. And yet, here is an example where a windfall, as you describe it, uh, benefited the Netherlands. I think the distinction I'd make for our listeners is that this one was decentralized. It was spread out among a whole bunch of fishermen, and it wasn't controlled by a an autocratic government, which is the recipe for disaster in most modern stories, where nations have uh, natural resources and then. It's a prize that the autocracy gets to uh, milk. Mm-hmm. So in this case, it was well, spread out among a bunch of fishermen. Yeah, and the, the, the Dutch were very conscious of the fact that they weren't an autocratic state. The, um, the Dutch had been under the, con- in the 16th century, the Dutch were under the control of the, of the, of the um, Spanish monarchy. And this was a source of um, great frustration for them. And uh, the Dutch... The Dutch state emerges in the late 16th century in a struggle against Spain because the, the, the Spain had had managed to to uh, weep, uh, weave a great uh, empire through much of southern and western Europe, and so the Dutch were a very independent group. Um, fishermen are notoriously independent, and um, then the, the merchants who first were handling the fish and were handling other kinds of goods as well were also fiercely independent. They were scattered in a, um, uh, oh, a dozen ports along the Dutch coast. And uh, it's, it's these people that the, the Dutch government, in this case, I think, wisely said, um, let's start working together. Rather than compete against each other, we're a small nation. Let's compete against the great, the great states of Europe. And um, they were able to do so successfully. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you were digressing. I, I should say that Econ Talk 
we thrive on on digression here. And I'm going to make a, a brief digression here about Vermeer before we move on to some okay. other aspects of international trade. First, I want to say that as a latecomer to the world of, of art, uh, your book gives me a very, I think, a wonderful way to look at, at paintings because it reminds you that what the artist includes isn't what the artist stumbles on. It's what the artist has chosen to put in the foreground or the background. And you do a wonderful job talking about those artifacts and wall hangings and other things. And I, I really enjoyed that. The second thing I learned that I thought was quite interesting, uh, which is always a useful reminder, is how hard life was uh, until fairly recently. And, and you mentioned that uh, poor Mrs. Vermeer, I think, had 16 pregnancies. Is that uh, correct? Yes. That we know of. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and buried uh, five children. Yes. Um, and that poor Vermeer himself died young. And when they went to bury him, um, found the the last child they had buried there still, still there, mostly uh, intact. Yeah, yeah. Buried uh, him on top. Put, buried the child on top of the father. Very sad. Uh, yes, we we um, th- this is this is something that I like I like to stress in the book, or just just to remind remind readers that in that life was not. A, as easy as we have it now. Um, we, we think of Vermeer as a stunningly successful artist, and the paintings that he did are, 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 are inexpressibly beautiful. And we somehow, perhaps unthinkingly, might, might, might see in those scenes that he's painted this kind of perfect golden world. Well, um, it was a very hard world. He spent, uh, he spent a lot of his time trying to make money unsuccessfully, he was largely supported by his mother-in-law, who was a very uh, uh, successful businesswoman in Delft. Um, uh, his fortunes rose and fell according to all manner of things. Um, whether whether when the Netherlands was at war, um, that tended to kill the art market, and uh, so uh, he was also an art dealer as well as an artist. Um, I think he was also having trouble. Uh, in his 40s, finding the same artistic inspiration that he'd had as a young man. And so when he dies, he dies of not a pauper, because his mother-in-law had bought a grave in the old church, so that when he died, there was a place to be buried. But the family was bankrupt. Um, Katerina Bones, his wife, had to declare bankruptcy three months after he died. And for a historian, this was a wonderful uh, a gift to us. It was not, not a happy thing for the Vermeer family, but for the historian, it's great, because when, Kater- when he died, Katerina had to draw up a list of all his possessions. Yeah. And it's from this list that we can begin to reconstruct something of his life. What did he own? Um, what clothes did he own? What paintings did he own? Um, who was he in debt to? All of this information is preserved in the, in the archives in Delft. And it's from, oddly enough, it's from the man's uh, beautiful paintings, and then from the the documents of a rather, not a tra- I won't say it's a tragic life, but it was a difficult life. And from those documents at the end of his life, we, 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 we try and triangulate from these two points to try and understand something about the man himself. And the man himself is very elusive. Um, there have been many attempts to capture him, um, but they all have to talk around Vermeer. There's not much we can say about him. Um, we suspect we know what he looks like because he painted himself into an early picture. After that, we know nothing about the man. Well, he sure was into light. Uh, yes. <laughs> bless him. Yes, uh, and, and I think really you have to, you almost have to be in the Netherlands to catch this sense of the light that comes in. It's, it's quite extraordinary. I suppose it's because of the sea air. There's this constant wind coming in off the North Sea, and if, um, if any of the listeners have been in the Netherlands, probably one of the sharpest visual memories they'll have of being there are these fluffy white clouds, uh, often dumping rain at the same time, but these huge cumulus clouds that are blowing in across the landscape, and it creates this dappled light effect, and uh, no one captures this like Vermeer. Let's talk now about some of the trade issues that that are in the rest of the book. Uh, You start off, uh, it's on the cover of the book, and it's a key chapter early on, The Officer and the Laughing Girl. Yes. It's, um, we see an officer, mostly from from behind, you see a little bit of of his face. The main focus is the light on the face of the laughing girl. But the man's wearing an enormous hat, and you use that as a 
for the title of the book, obviously, Vermeer's Hat. And you also use it to talk about trade between Europe and North America. So talk about what that hat is probably made of and why it was so important. Well, let let me um, step back a bit from your question. I'll I'll take a detour to get to it. Um, This picture, um, the reason why it ended up on the front of the book is... um, is happenstance. It has to do with lecturing. Um, I was putting together a course for first-year students in world history. Now, world history is an awfully difficult thing to to give first-year students because there's so much of the world there. And so I, I wanted to focus on, on certain places and times. But I, I started out the course um, by showing them a series of Dutch paintings from the 17th century that had maps hanging on the wall. And uh, if you if you uh, were to pick up a volume of 17th century Dutch art and look at the interiors, many of them have maps hanging there. And I started the course by saying, let's look at what interested 17th century artists, and not not from an artistic point of view, but see what they put in the rooms. And they put maps in the room. And so then I asked the students, well, why are maps there? And the maps are there because people are interested in the world. They want to know something about the place beyond themselves. Now, the, the, there's a map on the wall of Officer and Laughing Girl. It's a map of the Netherlands. Um, that map was a, a patriotic production uh, designed to give Dutch people a sense of uh, a view of, of this newly emerged country that has come out of uh, uh, Spanish occupation. They're very proud of this. But many of the other maps on the wall also uh, show Europe. They, there are maps of the world. We see this, what seems to be great interest on the part of Dutch householders are hanging maps on the wall. Well, I had this up on the, the screen showing my students. And then um, uh, I remember the lecture this was happening and the, the slide was up on the wall. And I suddenly noticed the hat. Now, the hat is an odd uh, thing in this painting. It's very dark you basically just see as an outline. There's a little some decoration in the man's hat band, but you don't really see the hat, but it, it really looms. It's this large black object sitting in the middle of the painting. Now, as a Canadian, I was born up, uh, brought up uh, on tales of the fur trade. This is part of the Canadian school curriculum. The growth of Canada has to do with the, the, the spread of the fur trade up the St. Lawrence into the Great Lakes. And so I suddenly thought, ah, that hat is made of beaver fur. And I suddenly saw this link from, that could take me from Northern Europe, from the Netherlands, over to North America. So I started to pursue this. Now, the, um, these huge hats that Dutch gentlemen wore are made from beaver fur, but they're not made from the fur itself. Um, the fur, the main hairs, the long hairs on the fur are actually stripped off, and what, the, uh, what are wanted is the, is the underfur, which is uh, is barbed, and once you cook this and beat it into felt, you have uh, the best felt in the world. Um, it's it's uh, marvelous for keeping off the rain. It can be blocked into shapes. Um, it has a dark, lustrous color. This was what Europeans in the 16th century were 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 lusting after. They wanted beaver fur. Um, to make these hats. And um, so hats through the early 17th century get larger and larger and larger. You can see this in, in European paintings of the period. People love these hats. So that this then got me interested in the trade between North America and uh, Northern Europe. The, the fur trade uh, is largely controlled by the French because the French have gone up the St. Lawrence. Um, they're the ones who are trading for the, the beaver furs. But then that led me to a further question, which is, why were they there in the first place? Why were they trading for furs? Now, um, you could simplify the story and say, well, there is a, this fashion that led um, Europeans to want to uh, trade for, for beaver fur. But the fashion really is the outcome of the trade. It's not the cause of the trade. The French were going up the St. Lawrence, looking for something. They weren't actually looking for beaver fur. Um, Beaver fur, in a sense, fell into their hands. It's what uh, native uh, communities were willing to sell them. Um, It was a very popular commodity. The French were buying it up, the Dutch and the English as well. Um, But the French were there for another purpose. So I, I, I wanted to think about what that purpose was. 
And to sort that out, I went back to the original commission that Champlain, Samuel Champlain, the head of the, the, French, uh, the French expedition, what was his original commission from Henry IV, his king? And the original commission was to find a route to China. The entire French enterprise in the Great Lakes was to find this route. Well, we call it the Northwest Passage, going up around the northern part of North America. But in the early 17th century, people were hoping there was a water route across um, North America. So the French go up the St. Lawrence, they go up through the Great Lakes, they are looking for a route to China. And the beaver fur is simply there to help them cover their costs on their way to China. It's such an incredible story, and the uh, one of the things I like about it is the unawareness people had of the size of the Earth. They, they started to realize it was round, but they didn't realize quite how far around it was. Yes, and <laughs> no, the, the Americas were a bit of a surprise to everyone. Yeah. Um, one of these sort of high school not high school, public school truths about Columbus is that he sailed off and he was afraid he was going to sail off the edge of the world. Um, I don't know where that came from, but it's utter nonsense. Columbus had a very clear idea that the world was round, and he had a very clear idea that if he sailed west long enough, he would get to Asia. What he didn't know is that the Americas would suddenly loom in his way. So when, when Columbus gets to uh, gets to the Caribbean, he's thought he's got to Japan. Yeah. And he's sure that, well, from Japan, then all he has to do is go around Cuba, and on the other side of Cuba, he will find China. But it wasn't Japan, and of course, that wasn't China. It was, it was, uh, it was the Americas. Um, so initially, there's this puzzle about how far you have to go um, heading west, and then, then the puzzle is how wide is the continent. Now, when the, the uh, Spanish are in Central America, they're, they're at the narrowest part of the continent. Uh, they get across the Isthmus of Panama without too much difficulty. But they've still got a long way to go. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, a long way to go. Because some, in some ways, land, water is worse than land, because uh, out on the water, when the storm comes, you've got no place to hide. But in other ways, the land is worse than the water, because water you can get across without expending too much energy. There's too much just, friction on land. Yes. In those yes, days. More friction. In those days. Um, and the other thing is that there are people, and the people are not always going to be terribly keen about having you yeah. uh, tromping across their territory. So when Champlain comes into um, the eastern woodlands of North America, he's dealing with, well, he's not simply an explorer coming into Terras Nullius. He's coming into a region that is populated, that has established um, sovereignty arrangements, that has trade arrangements, and Champlain's challenge is to figure out how can I insert myself into the trading patterns that are going on. It wasn't, it wasn't how can I bring my goods and set up trade. It was how can I become part of the trading patterns that are there. So he, um, he finds allies, as you have to when you're coming into a new zone, first with the Montanay, uh, then with the Algonquins, then with the Huron, and um, to some extent, uh, is playing these tribal groups off against each other in order to try and advance his own cause. In his own cause, well, he will, he's happy to trade. Um, he brings uh, trade goods from Europe. He exchanges them for beaver pelts. What is he uh, exchanging for those pelts? I've forgotten. Um, what, is he mainly, what are the Indians getting well, in return? The, 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 the natives want metal goods because they don't, have, uh, they don't have the technology for, for they don't have metallurgy. So they're interested in axe heads, they're interested in pots, and then by the second decade of the 17th century, what they really want is guns, because yep. this, is the, this is the thing that the Europeans bring. The Europeans bring a weapon that is uh, more lethal than anything that the natives have. They're, they have bow and arrows and use them very well, but a, a gun is a, 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 a whole other order of magnitude of violence, and this becomes the thing that, that natives want. Um, initially, the, the French are very careful about selling arms to their native allies. Initially, they refused to do it, um, but then as uh, competition with trade heats up, they realize they're going to have to start selling arms. Um, the Dutch, uh, the Dutch are up the Hudson River. They're in they're in uh, New York State at this point. Um, the Dutch are quite indiscriminate. They'll sell arms to anyone in order to get the furs that they want. 
but this has this has a terrible effect in several ways. First of all, the the arms they trade are then sold on to other groups. These arms are then used not just against Europeans; they are used against each other. And so the the, the um, native groups in the eastern woodlands were were engaged in a kind of um, uh, a sort of balancing act with each other. Uh, violence determined where the borders of their territories lay, and there was a, a kind of constant recalibrating of these borders. But once you introduce guns, the violence that could erupt among tribes became vicious, it became deadly. And so uh, we have the Europeans to thank for uh, many unfortunate things that happened to First Nations people in North America. One is the introduction, introduction of guns. The other that comes with the guns is epidemic diseases. And so the, the uh, tribes in the eastern woodlands are decimated by measles and smallpox as well as by guns. Now, um, this certainly wasn't what Champlain intended when he arrived, but uh, the understanding of epidemic diseases at that point is very rudimentary. The understanding of guns was much better. But now, How important does the beaver trade become? The for, beaver for trade European... is extremely important through the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, it's not. Are we just at, talking hats here? Um, or are they doing yeah, other things? principally hats. Um, felt uh, felt is used for 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 other kinds of uh, adornment, clothing. Um, this is this is the this is the commodity that is readily available. Now, the French are also hoping to find mineral deposits. Uh, copper is. Uh, is the one mineral that um, natives are trading and that, that uh, the French are buying. Um, wood is not yet a significant commodity, although it becomes so by the 18th century. And this is more. For, uh, this is a story for the British when we move forward into the 18th century. The British are building these, uh, are building their navy, and for these ships, you need a lot of wood. And so, uh, North America is a is a is a wood windfall. It's a big forest. For the Europeans, the forests, yes, provide the kind of wood they need that all the Europe, European nations need in order to uh, in order to build their ships. The wood is also an energy windfall um, for the Europeans because uh, wood is uh, wood is what what they were burning for for energy. Um, so there there is. Uh, this uh, energy windfall that comes to the Europeans. And then once they start colonizing, then there are certain crops that get introduced, um, basically export commodity crops like tobacco and sugar. These are the two most important uh, commercial crops that develop in North America in the 17th century um, that become part then of, of of an exchange of goods that is going in all directions. You've got sugar coming from the Caribbean to Europe. You have tobacco coming from North America. Um, you have, uh, uh, well, many, many, other, many other commodities are entering this trade. Most notoriously, slaves from Africa become part of the, 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 the way in which Europe becomes wealthy by, by trading in, in these goods around the Atlantic Ocean. Well, let's move on to China, which is... Uh extremely uh, really fascinating cultural and economic story that, that runs through the book. In Vermeer's painting, Young Woman Reading a Letter at an Open Window, there's a plate of fruit in the foreground, yeah. and the plate, or it's actually a bowl, I think, uh, is Chinese porcelain. Yes. What, what's it doing there? And what's it well, doing in, in the Netherlands in 16, the middle of the 17th century? Well, this again is why I find Vermeer such a great artist to work from. Just like the herring buses in view of Delft that are telling us something about global cooling, we've got this this uh, porcelain dish in the foreground of a uh, woman reading a letter at an open window. You hardly see the plate, in fact. It's, it's, it's kind of tilted sideways. There's, it's pushed up against a Turkish carpet. There's fruit in the bowl, but it just peaks. The rim of, the rim of this bowl just peaks up behind the carpet. Um, very subtly done, but as a, as a China historian, um, uh, my interest... Grabbed your eye. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, this is, this is what catches my attention. Now, I, I, it would also have caught... A, a viewer's attention in the 17th century because Chinese porcelains were just becoming widely available at the time that uh, Vermeer was painting. And um, he and every other Dutch artist of that period 
Um, they were all putting Chinese porcelain into their paintings. These were lovely things. They were just beautiful. They were wonderful for an artist to paint because they had a luster. The, 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 uh, the glaze on Chinese porcelain was far superior to anything that a European potter could produce. So the artists love, these, love to paint these things. And uh, I think the people who bought the paintings also liked to see them in it. These were the new luxury goods. Um, people wanted to display them. They have them around their house. They put them on sideboards. They put them on mantelpieces, on the lintels over their doors. They put this stuff. People still do. Uh, yes, and people still Asian do. Yes, it's still, still a decorative item. It's a very good point. We, we like to see these things. There, there's a, a sense of beauty to them that, that is wonderful. Well, um, this is also a 17th century story. Uh, the first major shipment of porcelain comes from a, sh a Portuguese ship that the Dutch capture in 1602. And uh, they, they capture the ship, they bring it back to Amsterdam, they unload it, and it's full of porcelain. Now, the, the Portuguese have been bringing a modest amount of porcelain into Europe in the 16th century, but the, these, uh, the porcelain was not, largely not leaving Portugal and Spain. It was just staying there. Much of it, in fact, uh, uh, ended up in Mexico. Um, but nor so northern Europeans don't have much access to the market. They, they capture the ship, um, unload the, the, uh, the, the, the porcelain cargo, and there is a, a wild sale that goes on in Amsterdam. The crowned heads of Europe all send buyers to Amsterdam to buy some of this stuff. It's so wonderful. The Dutch do this again two years, uh, two years later, uh, capture another Portuguese ship, bring that up. These ships are called carracks, and so the, the, the Dutch call this um, carrack porcelain or crack porcelain. And uh, the second ship, uh, the reaction of the second ship is just the same. Huge, uh, huge excitement over this, this amazing porcelain that comes out of the ship. So after that, by, uh, oh, by 1608, the uh, Dutch East India Company is telling its buyers in Asia, buy porcelain, bring as much of this stuff back as you possibly can. And so they start doing that. Now, initially... Um, Initially, these, these, uh, the porcelain is very expensive. Ordinary people cannot buy it. It's really only for wealthy people. Um, but gradually, um, as we move uh, to the middle of the 17th century, the volume of porcelain imports has gone up to such an extent that somebody like Vermeer, who's, I, I'm not sure how to quite characterize him, but a sort of a lesser middle-class family, is able to own a couple of pieces. So if you, if you look through... Uh, a, all of Vermeer's paintings, you see them here and there. I've spotted four so far. Um, he's got this, this, this sort of shallow dish in the painting that you mentioned. He uses this in another painting, a wonderful one of a young woman as, who's fallen asleep at a table. And uh, there's, a, there's one of these dishes in the... Uh, it's probably the same dish on the table in front of her. Um, there's a couple of other... There's, a, there's a, a beautiful dark blue ginger jar that appears in one painting. There's also a, a bowl with high sides that appears in another one. So the family may have owned four or five pieces of Chinese porcelain. And, uh, and Vermeer made a point of sticking them around his paintings. They were lovely decorative objects. But uh, sorry to go on about this, but there's one other thing that they do, and that, that is they convey uh, a sense of good taste and gentility in these paintings, that, that fine families would own porcelain. Therefore, the way you communicate that to the viewer is you make sure that there's a piece of porcelain in the picture. It shows that the family is well off and that it's a family of good taste. Well, one of the things it conveys to us almost 400 years later is a, um, an openness to other cultures and other uh, people. Exactly. That, that, exactly. You know, as I mentioned earlier, it's not my taste, but people do still collect Chinese uh, uh, art of various kinds mm -hmm. as a way of either expressing beauty or style or just the exotic. And Europe and, and America has always, not always, but often is open to those cultural imports. But yes. it didn't go very far in the other direction. And that's what I want you to talk about. Talk about what the Chinese perception was. So the Euro Europeans are mad for this porcelain, and you mentioned mm -hmm. that millions of pieces come in o over the decades, uh, much of it probably 
breaking on the way, others breaking <laughs> once it got there and being replaced. Yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful um, uh, product, but it does it's a bit it's a bit uh, fragile. So you had this importing of of and it, it affected, as you point out, it it affected Dutch art, it affected Dutch porcelain, Delftware mm-hmm. in terms of color, the use of color, mm-hmm. and, and attempts to to equal the quality of the glazing, and yet the influence of Europe on or or America on China uh, was much smaller. Yes, in those days. Balanced. Uh, yes. Why? What, what was going on in China? Well, that made that trade so one way in terms of influence? It's difficult to give you a single why, but I think your second question, what was going on in China, is, is, is the question we need to ask to try and figure this out. There is a... There has been a... Well, there are many stereotypes about China, but one of the stereotypes is that Europeans are curious about the outside world, uh, seek to engage with the outside world, are constantly revising their views based on their experience in the outside world. On the other side of this assumption is that China is a place that... And Japan. uh, Yes, well, much of Asia. These were places that were inward-looking, that were closed to the outside world, that resisted foreign influence. This... um, Like all stereotypes, it's got elements of truth and elements of of error, I think. And and I think what you have to do is you have to go back to the 17th century and see how the the Europe-China relationship was beginning to build. China, uh, to be fair, um, China was a large part of the world that had an adequate resource base for most of its needs, that had um, an advanced technology, and was, um, was, not having to, um, was not having to look outside of itself for things that it needed. Europe is a, uh, Europe is a continent divided amongst a, a number of small countries, none of which has the resources adequate for its own success. It's got to, European nations have got to trade, they've got to compete. It's a different way of thinking about how to survive as a state. It's a different way of thinking about the economy. China in the 17th century, well, China for the last two millennia, has largely been a, a large unified landmass with an adequate resource base. A great deal of trade. A very China is a very commercial place in the 17th century, but it was commerce that was internal to the country. It was not foreign trade. Now, um, that's something of a stereotype, but I think we can we can we can start to ask some questions about that. And first of all, did the Chinese travel abroad to trade? And the ad- answer is absolutely yes. Now, the, the Chinese government was rather hostile to this, not uniformly. There are times when the Chinese border is open and Chinese merchants are allowed to trade and they they are allowed to import uh, goods from abroad. Um, But there are other times in the 16th and 17th centuries when the borders are closed. Now, the Chinese government tended to close its borders when it perceived a security threat. So the issue was never trade per se. It was whether the people involved in the trade were going to be threatening to uh, Chinese authority or whether they were going to be threatening to Chinese people. So for long stretches of the 16th century, it is absolutely illegal to sail abroad. Um, you, in fact, there's a, a law is put in in the 1520s saying that no ship of two masts or more is able to put out to sea, which is a way of saying you can hug the coast and that's it. You cannot, you cannot engage in trade. Now, th- this law is, is uh, lifted in the 1570s. And so when by the time the Dutch arrive, well, the Dutch do most of their trading, in fact, outside China. They're in, uh, they're in um, uh, Sumatra, Java, Borneo. They're, they're in Southeast Asia, and they trade with Chinese there. So Chinese um, merchants bring their goods out to Southeast Asia. This is where the Dutch trade. The Dutch also come up along the coast. They try and get a, a trading post in, uh, somewhere along the coast. The Chinese government is hostile, and we often speak of this in terms of xenophobia or as an unwillingness to be open to the West. The Chinese didn't see it that way. The Chinese view is, or the, the view of the Chinese government is that China is a sovereign territory. 
if foreigners want to come, they have to trade according to Chinese laws. They can't simply sort of land, build themselves a trading post, and say, right, we're here to trade. Um, this was a bit of a shock to the Europeans, because Europeans were going to the Americas, going to Africa, and um, setting up bases there. Well, that's fine. Well, it wasn't fine for, the, for, for native peoples around the world, but at, at the time, the Europeans were able to do this because there were no states that said, sorry, we have sovereignty here. You can't just come and uh, set up a colony and start trading. And so this was the Chinese message to the Europeans. Now, the Portuguese managed to get a little, a little colony on a, on a peninsula at the south end of China, Macau, and uh, but that was the only place that Europeans were actually allowed to live permanently. They could. There was a trading season. There was a fair at Canton every year. They they could come to the trade fair. They could trade, but they could not set up a colony. Now, um, this I don't think this is so much that China wishes to close itself off to the outside world, but it wants to control the terms, its terms of trade and the terms of its diplomatic relations with the outside world. But the result, one of the results, which is um, which you mentioned in passing, which I thought was so fascinating, uh, credible story really, is the evolution of European world maps and Chinese world maps. So the European, there's a, the. Um, the Vermeer painting that is it the geographer who's got the globe on the yes. top of his uh, right of his uh, sh on a shelf or a top of a, a dresser or whatever That's it right. is, but this globe you point out in real life the actual globe that he's reproducing there in real life had a an apology on it uh, yes. that, that it had, that it you know it's a bit awkward when you put out a globe a few years after another edition and it's it's real different because you sold the other globe the earlier one as a replica of the world and now you're saying well actually it wasn't a replica of the world it was off yeah. and that must have been happening constantly with maps and globes but in the case of china um that evolution was uh, not happening so explain why yes well you're 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 right to point out this difference the the it was a difference of effects. The, the effect of Europeans being out around the world, trading, going to new places, exploring new markets, the, the knowledge effect on this was huge. Um, and the, one of the easiest ways we can track the effect of this new knowledge is to look at maps and globes. Uh, you're absolutely right. The globe that's in um, the Vermeer painting, The Geographer, has a, a little note on it. Uh, the real one has a note on it saying, um, sorry, the world keeps changing. And, and it also says, and anyone who comes back from some place that we haven't managed to put on the globe right, please write to us and, and, and we'll change the map. So <laughs> maps are constantly changing. And knowledge of the world is constantly changing. And this becomes a tremendous resource for Europeans. They, they, it improves their ability to travel around the world and to engage in the trade that is that is booming in the 17th century. The Chinese are in a very different position. The effect of maintaining their border security and of limiting foreign trade means that they, they don't have um, this, this flood of new knowledge coming to China. They don't know really what the shape of the world is. They don't know what's going on out there. And so they, they find themselves at a disadvantage. Now, it's not much of a disadvantage in the 17th century. True Chinese firearms are somewhat superior to, uh, excuse me, are inferior to European firearms. Um, European ships are larger and more defensible than Chinese ships. So, so there are differences in the 17th century. They're not huge. Where the difference really comes in is at the end of the 18th century, the early 19th century. This is when European ship technology and munitions technology escalates to a level far beyond anything a nation like China can, can, can put out on the water to defend itself. And this is when, um, this is when the world order, um, as we knew it in the 17th, 18th century, starts to collapse. And the new order, the new imperialist order coming from Europe, uh, takes control of the globe. And China is not prepared. China is not able to respond um, effectively. Well, you, you quote Francis Bacon uh, marveling at the compass, paper, and gunpowder, unaware, famously unaware, you point out, yes. that all three innovations, all three technologies came from China. Yes. And China, 
which had been a great innovator, um, quote, falls behind and is can't even steal the innovations of others if it doesn't go out and explore it. Do you think it's true that in that the, those centuries that followed that they paid a price and not just in terms of of uh, munitions and, and ships, but in other areas that they once uh, were so superb at? Yes, they did pay a price. And it's, it's, though, though it's, I think we have to be careful about looking back from the present to understand the judgments and decisions that get made in the past. I mean, the only place we can stand in the present, we can only look back. We can't go back to stand in 1600 and look forward and see what's happening. We can only stand in 2008 and look back. Um, but we have to be careful about the assumptions that, that we bring into this. Um, it's not clear that that a turning point is reached until really, I think, quite late, and until the 18th and 19th uh, centuries. But the price that the Chinese end up paying, well, it's, it's ignorance of the outside world. It's um, uh, an, a delayed uh, reception of, of technological advances. And I should say, in, in terms of technology, as you point out, um, China was a great source of technological innovation, um, and that innovation, if, if you like, was a sort of steady upward slope of, of new developments. Well, um, Europe, uh, after the Renaissance, Renaissance, starts going through uh, a technological transformation that, that, that causes that, that slope to become suddenly very much steeper, and the Chinese are not able to follow. And so when uh, they have to learn industrialization in the 19th century, um, Sort of at the point of a gun, rather than rather than as a as, a, as the kind of slow process that that characterized their own technical innovation before that. So it leaves China unprepared um, to deal with the outside world. It leaves Chinese without the linguistic capabilities to be able to to go out into the world. And one one of the marvelous things I discovered in the 17th century is the the extent to which Europeans were picking up languages. And it's not the um, it's not the captains and the the commanders who are picking up these languages. It's very ordinary people. One of the things I try and do in the book is is to show how all of this affected ordinary people: the sailors, uh, mm -hmm. soldiers, uh, people working as uh, to to handle goods. These are the people who are actually going out into the world, learning foreign languages, learning about the outside world, bringing their experiences back, and making Europe the cosmopolitan place that it certainly wasn't in the 15th and 16th centuries. Europe was a much more closed society. Um, and so the, 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 the effect of, the, 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 of, of people going out into the world in the 17th century is to transform Europe in a way that China is not transformed. And it was, it was a marvelous time in many dimensions. You had on the downside a lot of plague and uh, some of the problems of economic change that, and, that you talk about. But... Um, it was a time of, of great opportunity and uh, dynamism. Yes, well, we the textbooks will call this the age of discovery, I suppose. And um, I prefer to think of it as the age of innovation. This is when people are having to come up with new ways of sorting out their lives, new ways of dealing with the world, because they suddenly found they were living in a much larger place, a much more complex place than they had ever understood. They, well, they were interacting with people of different languages, customs, religions, um, and they had Europeans had constantly to improvise in order to make sense of this. And I have to say, this, to some extent, Chinese did too. It was a very innovative age for them. One, one element of the Chinese story, I don't really talk, address this in the book, but the story in China changes because China is invaded in 1644 by the Manchus, who are an inter-Asian people living up in Siberia. And they come down... Uh, uh, enter China in 1644, and then control it to 1911. That, I think, has a, has a dampening effect. Um, China, had it remained under the Ming dynasty, um, well, the Ming was not hugely welcoming to foreigners, but um, it was willing to uh, develop certain accommodations with the foreigners. This sense of willingness to accommodate is lost after the Manchus invade. Now, the Manchus themselves begin to reopen the process in the in the 1680s um, 
but but the the transformations that were may have been underway in China are dampened down by by the political context. You know, there's an inevitable comparison to today's world that I think some commenters um, and pundits uh, use for their own you know axe grinding about mm. the the turmoil of this age. But there's something equally marvelous and extraordinary about our opportunity to sample and taste and listen to yes. foreign culture now in a way, uh, foreign's not the foreign meaning from wherever you live, the, the opportunity to access the way other people look and think and cook and make music and, and speak is just so extraordinary. And, you know, I, for many of us, it's, it's the best time to be alive because of all that, uh, that spread well, of, you know, I, I agree with you, and I world. think that's why I wrote the book the way the way in which I did. I'm uh, the we we live we live in an incomparable time. We live in a time of, of of terrible difficulties and problems, but we live in a time in which we can in which we can live all around the world and experience the world in ways that we value and 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 see as part of what makes us who we are and. To tell that story, I think the 17th century is the point where you have to go back. This is the beginning of the, of a kind of openness to the world that that uh, transforms us. And so, I, I I wanted to the reader to be able to see that what we enjoy today, what is possible today, rests on many centuries, and that uh, it's not something that we somehow have discovered in the last uh, couple of decades. It's why I. I use the phrase uh, "the dawn of the global global world" in my subtitle. I, uh, I see this as the 17th century as the place in which this transformation is starting to occur, in which people are starting to see the new possibilities of of living differently and uh, interacting in intercultural ways that that they couldn't have conceived of in the 16th century. Um, so, so we're very much part of a world that's existed for several centuries. We're we're not. We're not something that has suddenly appeared today. We're almost out of time. I'd, I'd like you to close with a question that, uh, answering a question that I know you need four or five hours or maybe a semester, but uh, it, it, the book made me think about China today and how different China today is with its uh, opening of, of its shores and its people to incredible amounts of foreign investment that would have been unimaginable certainly a few hundred years ago, but even mm-hmm. even 30 years ago. Um, so there's an enormous influx of Western money, Western people, Western ideas, Western culture. The Chinese government tries to limit it to some extent. Yes. They, they have an internet. They cripple it in creative ways, but it's still there. And there are right now listeners to Econ Talk in China who've, who've emailed me, and it's I find that to be an ever-wondrous thing. Yes. Did yes. you speculate... Yes. Could you speculate for a minute about what role, if any, China's past has on its attitudes today about with respect to, to the influence of trade and foreign culture? The past is very much present today in China, and it, it's it's present in the in this sense of uh, uh, of uh, being uh, anxiety about what opening up to the outside world is going to do. And in, in part, this anxiety, though, I think has more to do with the, the 19th century, which was a terrible century for China. You had uh, uh, the British uh, forcing China to buy opium. You had uh, civil war. You had uh, border skirmishes all over the Chinese borders. The 19th century was a terrible century. And the legacy of that uh, managed to survive through much of the 20th century as well. So Chinese in 2008 are coming out of a two-century-long crisis that makes them very cautious. On the one hand, makes them very cautious about the world. On the other hand, however, has given them, I think, some impetus now to really go out in the world and remake their relationship. So um, perhaps the, the enthusiasm and dynamism that we see in 17th century Europe is what we're seeing now in China, that the Chinese themselves are now embracing the world. They are traveling. They are learning foreign languages. They are learning new ideas. They're trying to think of ways to bring their own traditions into 
conversation with traditions around the world. It's a very dynamic time for young Chinese. Very, it's a very exciting time to be alive in China. And uh, we're only seeing a bit of this, I think, in the outside. We maybe standing in in North America, we're we're seeing China opening up, and we see it through trade. And trade is one part of the story. But for the Chinese, it's it's a very exciting time for them. They're they are discovering the world, and perhaps in some way, the story I'm telling in in Vermeer's Hat is uh, is the experience that they are now having as as the terms of their their place in the world is now changing. My guest today has been Timothy Brook, author of Vermeer's Hat, The 17th Century and the Dawn of the Global World. Tim, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.